I don't know what to tell you. You know, the brutal honesty was was hard. You know, when you got people crying in front of you, bawling their eyes out, telling you about their children, and you just it's it's heartbreaking. It's, it really is. How many near-death experiences can one business survive? My next guest is putting that question to the test. Jonathan Krupp decided to leave his successful corporate career when he jokingly suggested that a friend of his give him startup capital instead of investing it in an ice cream business. Krupp took that million rand investment and started Velocity Group 15 years ago. The business turned a profit almost immediately and Krupp and his partners decided to expand into Africa through a single large client. As the profit rolled in, so too did his confidence and his hunger to start a new business and continue to prove himself as a seasoned repeat entrepreneur. These distractions continued over the years and each one ended in a different disaster and a new lesson for him and his businesses. Jonathan's story is one filled with determination, imposter syndrome, and many repeated failures that led him to the successful business that he is now expanding globally. My name is Nick Haralambas and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So remember, it's not over until it's over. Welcome back to It's Not Over. I am sitting with Jonathan Kropf. Is that F a silent F or did I get that right? You got that right. Yes. I mean, with a surname like Haralambas, my listeners starting to learn that I'm pretty pedantic about surnames. Welcome and thank you for... Yeah, thank you so much. I, I practiced that before we got on air. Thank you for joining me. Why don't you kick off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what your business is? Cool. So currently I'm the CEO of Losty Group. I started the business back in 2007 with two friends at the time and I've spent the last 15 years learning some, some tough lessons and, and and reaping some rewards from those as well, I suppose. And currently based in the UK, getting our UK operations, UK and Europe, operations up and going um, as our next phase of our business. So that's, that's amazing. That's me in a nutshell. Yeah. Okay. So we can already take from that, that this isn't a pure death experience with your business, but more like a no. near death one because you've expanded. So that's good. Okay. So 2007, you started this business. Do you have co-founders? Where did the idea come from? And like, why did you start this business and what does it do? Yeah. So I've, I've been in the technology space since 1998, kind of got into it out of school, really. I mean, the, the, the reality was, was yes, I kind of like technology, but I really wanted a, a nice car. And the quickest way to do that was to, to do an MCSE. And with the, the rush of MCSEs in the late 90s that were supposedly earning big bucks and get into to working quickly. So I did a 10-month MCSE course and then started working as a technician. And that was really how I got into, into IT. And after about 18 months, two years, I realized that being a technician wasn't, what I wanted to do, it, it just didn't didn't suit me, and somehow I got into into sales in one of the first companies I worked at, and and from there really built a sales career over the next few years. Um, ended up from a young age being a sales manager at, at one of the larger technology companies in South Africa, and then a general manager also for one of the, one of the large companies in South Africa, looking after a fairly big uh, infrastructure sales division. And during that time at, at that large organisation, I kind of started talking to to some friends of mine who were in the industry. And, and one of them was about to invest, funnily enough, in an ice cream shop. I don't know if you remember the ice cream and yogurt craze back back yeah. in the mid-2000s. There was all those uh, shops popping up all over the place. And he was about to sink some money into one of those. I said, like, are you, are you crazy? There's, there's other things you can do with this money. He said, like, what? I said, well, give it to me. I'll, <laughs> uh, you know, I'll start a business. And, and he said, you know what? 
let's do it. So he had some mobile phone shops at the time and he was out of IT, typical IT. And uh, yeah, a friend of mine who was also in the industry, we, we got together and the three of us started the business. He was, uh, the person who funded it to my mate was a, a silent partner, essentially in the business. And the two of us kind of got it up and going. And the idea was to was to go out and, and gain customers by doing things slightly differently. So we came up with a, a concept called Zero Logistics, where we delivered infrastructure and hardware, but without having our own drivers and warehousing and all that kind of stuff. We got the distributors to do that completely on our behalf. And up until then, some of the larger organizations had had some of their deliveries done by the distributors. It was a big rollout or something like that. But we just said, we don't need, we actually don't need drivers and warehousing if, the, if they're going to deliver to anywhere in the country, why don't they just deliver straight to our customer? And that was the basis for, for actually where the company name came from was, was Velocity, because we could deliver stuff quicker than anyone else could. And there was a good USP at the time. I mean, at the time, you know, large organizations could be a two-week procurement two process just to get a, a notebook. And, and often the person needed the notebook when they requested it, so it was already two weeks late. So to, to take three, four, five days to deliver something to a customer, whereas we could deliver it next day was a massive, massive gain for us. And we, we acquired a lot of customers, both in South Africa and then outside of South Africa into the African continent as well. It is quite an astounding thing that today, if you had to say that your USP is delivery that you don't own, it would be like, yeah, like Uber or like any yeah. last mile logistics company. Yeah. So it is yeah. so interesting that just such a simple thing can set you apart as a company early on, yeah. which is immediately the first lesson for anybody is you don't have to find complex USPs, right? Yeah, correct. It, it wasn't, we didn't have own our own IP. We weren't developing software. There was none of that. It was, how do we just make the customer experience better? And and how can we do it differently to, to everyone else? Which we did. And it worked. It did work really, really well. I guess the, the challenge was, that we started then we built a business based on being quicker and cheaper than everyone else because we could cut out the cost as well. We didn't have the delivery costs, so we could be cheaper mm-hmm. than everyone else. And that kind of legacy of being quicker and cheaper has been, was very difficult to shake off over the last, the last 15 years or so. Well, yeah, I suppose it becomes a race to the bottom when your competitors kind of catch up and then offer free yeah, every, delivery. And yeah, where yeah. do you go from there? Correct. Everyone catches up. But then also the other things we tried along the way, and there's, there's been many, and, and you say there's, there's no deaths. There's, there's been many deaths, let me tell you, and, I, and I'll go through them at some point. Cool. But, but the, some of those businesses and some of the initiatives that we tried, the problem was that the brand of, of being able to deliver something quick and easy and cheaper from a hardware perspective really inhibited us in the, in the services. So we found we couldn't actually go and necessarily sell the services we thought we could to existing customers because they didn't see us as a as a services-based business. So we were a hardware supplier. And to try and change someone's mind after the fact is, is very, very difficult. It takes a long time. Yeah. Okay, so the first question I want to ask off the back of what you've already told us is what on earth made you leave what seems to be quite a successful career as a sales director, GM, in tech space, and then to, over a conversation with a friend, go, screw it, don't give money to an ice cream shop, which, let's be honest, ice cream shops make money. Give it to me. <laughs> Like yeah. out of out of the blue to just go, you know what, I don't want a career, I want to start a business. Those are different skills, different mindsets, different everything, and you have no experience in this. Why did you risk it all? Youthful exuberance. I was twenty seven, <laughs> you know, when you when you're in your twenties, nothing nothing can kill you. You know, everything's everything's fantastic and, and you can do anything. Which is a great certainly a great attitude to have at the time, but that can also that can also hurt you. 
Mm. But I, I believed I believed that we could do it better, and I believed that um, I believed there was just a different way of doing things, and that we didn't have to build a massive business to to have a really good business. And and we just yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know. It was stupidity and youthful exuberance. And then what was interesting was we, we actually started that. If you look at the timeline, I think we we started October two thousand and seven. And it was really started around my dining room table. And for a good few months, you know, we actually had to set up aliases for people like, you know, orders at Velocity Group and logistics at Velocity Group. And and somebody would query an order and I'd email from the order's email address out and, you know, not sign my name. So it looked like we had multiple people in the business for the the kind of three or four months where it was just just me. But the the global financial crisis hit. I think it was... 2008. End of October, Mm. November. December, I think Bear Stearns was was uh, was in big crap in December, January. So we started this business, and everyone said, "Are you, like, are you mad? How can you do?" <laughs> we this? don't need faster logistics now. We need money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so the it was quite interesting though because we could change our USP to talk about the cost aspect. You know, mm-hmm. we could say we can do it cheaper. And, yeah. And we just had to change a little bit of the messaging. And it worked, but we did have a lot of people. I had a lot of people saying, you, you know, you're insane. You're going to lose, you're going to lose everything. And it was too late. You know, we really started the business. I've resigned. I was, you know, we, were, we were on our way. Hey folks, Nick here, and I'm interrupting this fascinating conversation. And I know that that can be irritating, but I wanted to ask you to do me a small favor that will help me in a huge way. Please right now, stop and go and subscribe to It's Not Over wherever you are listening whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, or YouTube, then leave a rating and review and turn on notifications. Every subscriber and every rating helps me keep this podcast trucking along. Now, back to the Knowledge Bombs. So it's interesting, how much iteration did you take in terms of the, you make it sound quite simple, oh, we just changed our messaging, but like from this show, I can tell you how many entrepreneurs don't realize that they have to change the messaging and then that's their near-death experience. So yeah. did you have customers coming back to you going, no, 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 that's too expensive or, oh my God, you're so cheap. And then you were like, holy shit, we should put that in our messaging. Yeah. So when we're talking to, to customers, because we had no customers, you know, it, it was a case of, well, Sherbet, what do we do now? Look at a mm. look at a phone book, I think still in those days, Google a bit and, and, <laughs> and hope, hope that some old customers would phone us. And, and we, when we had the discussions about quicker, quicker logistics and we can do it cheaper, the thing that people started to hook onto was that, and you can do it cheaper. So uh, tell me about that. You know, and we could, we could do, we could, we could add like one, 2% onto, onto an order and it would make us money. There was only like yeah. four of us when we started. So it was fine. And yeah. uh, that's what we, we, we hooked onto as a quickly whole thing. Everyone wants to, to talk about the cost saving benefit mm, and we just quickly clear. changed it. In yeah. terms of near-death experiences, I would say the global yeah. financial crisis right at the start of the business was probably the first one, uh, and yeah. that was like three months in. So, It's a hell of a way to kick off uh, your first yeah, entrepreneurial endeavor and having yeah. your friend's money back you. Can I, can I ask, your friend was like, okay, cool, I trust you, I like you, I'm going to give you money. H- how much money was that 15 years ago? It was a million rand. A million rand. That is mm. that is an insane amount of money for a, a friend who was going to start an ice cream shop to just hand over to a dude. Did you like? Did you have to convince him? Did you have to write a business plan, or did he trust you? Yeah, as the founder? No, so we, we we had. I mean, it was something that I, I was thinking about. So when I said to him, "Hey, give me why don't you give me the money?" It was a bit of a joke, and then I thought, actually, that's well, that's great. Let me let me go out and, and see what we can do. So we did put a business plan together. We spoke to some investors and and you know try to try to raise that that capital. 
and yeah. then just went back to him and said, look, here's my actual plan. And, Amazing. And that's how we, we got it, yeah. Okay, cool. So you tweak the, the messaging, you start to gain some traction, you get some clients. This is all very South Africa focused, if I'm not mistaken, at this point, yeah, right? And I imagine Africa. Johannesburg mostly is where you're getting most of your business. Johannesburg, correct. And what, then, what happened was, yeah. well, what happened then was we actually managed to get into one of the big cell networks in, on the African continent, supplying servers and, and storage and things like that. Huge. So it actually took our business outside of South Africa. And for a good year and a but probably 18 months, we, most of our business was outside of South Africa, not, not inside of South Africa. So the inside of South Africa business became the cream on the, on the top and we weren't reliant on it. It was this, this like large cell network. And then on the back of that, it was into some of the banks in, in, in African countries as well okay. that we could, we could get into. So we did a lot of business outside of South Africa at that point. You have made it sound quite simple that you started three months later, you had a bit of a financial crisis and then bang, you landed this continent-wide customer. How did you land this particular telco? So one of the, one of the operations, I think we were in about seven or eight countries, and one of the, the old IT managers that we, we had dealt with previously phoned us and said, we're having issues getting equipment into the country. Can you, can you help? Being being young, we said, of course we can, and then worked out how to do it. And we managed to track down some kits and, and, and got it into country relatively quickly, and he loved it. And we started dealing with that operation, and then we managed to to kind of get referred into the others from there. But it wasn't just a case of like you know it was all over email. We actually got onto planes. We spent a lot of time in you know Malawi, Zambia, Kenya, Tanzania, um, and then ultimately they were they were bought up by a, a Middle Eastern company. So you know, spent a lot of time in. Bahrain, just making sure that that relationship grew and, and worked. So it was a lot of time out the country to, and away from family to make sure that that, that business happened. So you secure the big telco, they grow your business. And my question is, is this unsustainable growth? Is it crazy growth or is it normal growth that you can cope with? And it's around 2008 and nine now. Yeah, timeline's about right. It was, it was good growth. It wasn't, it wasn't like massive growth. I think we, we kind of went from zero to 40 million to another year but it, it i mean i'm laughing because you say that that's not crazy growth but you take on a million rand in funding and within two years you're doing 40 million rand in revenue that is yeah. pretty substantial yeah and, and actually in our first year we had, we had delivered a pretty good profit on that i think we i think we would i'm trying to think back to the numbers probably about three million rand profit for the year yeah, I mean, um, now I'm kind of glad that you're on my show about a near-death near business experiences because that is wildly unfair to go from zero to three million rand profit in one year. It's astounding, but irritating. Yes, but then <laughs> we took it and, and threw it away on the next near-death experience. <laughs> yes, let's get right into that. Okay, lead us into that. So, so yeah, about, uh, about the end of 2008, because we had this big cell phone company and they, they trusted us, they said, can you, can you supply us handsets? We're having massive issues with handsets and actual phones. The low, you know, kind of low-cost phones, we've been dealing with some of the suppliers from China, and we just don't have the patience for this. Can you help us out? And that was one of the operations. And we said, once again, yeah, sure. And this so we, is kind we of the time when, when you say cheap mobile phones, you mean like not smartphones, to not touch-enabled, J2ME type of like, phones. Correct. Yeah. You know, only capable of USSD Single, yeah. single color screen, you know, uh, an El Cheapo phone that you would pay, I don't know, 80 bucks in a shop now. In, on the continent of Africa is a massive opportunity massive. because those phones, people had two or three phones per human at that time. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
so we, we investigated, we found some suppliers and uh, we thought, hey, this is actually, once again, this is, could be a good business. We can get some scale, we can get some volume. So we decided to, to spin it out as, as a separate entity doing just cellular stuff. Because it's kind of different from supplying notebooks and servers and, and that kind of thing. It was a little bit different. It was importing from China. It was There were some complexities to it. And we thought that it could get some, some serious, serious scale. So we, we pulled that out and, and the, the, the one partner went and ran with that. And I ran with the, the core IT business. And we recruited, recruited four or five people into that business. We took some outside investment, happened to be from our friend who had given us the, the initial loan. His father was in the cellular business, decided to invest some money in, into us there. Well, it was over a million rand as well. And it, it looked like it was going to be a great business. And then we just kept hitting problem after problem. One of the main problems being that the, the Chinese, large Chinese manufacturers, ATE and Huawei and those guys, the minute you, you put a price down on the table, they would just undercut it, no matter what that price was. It was... It was ridiculous. We even put prices down just to just to see if, what would happen, and it would be, you know, our cost was nine dollars, and we put it down at seven dollars, and they come in at six, just because they, just market they, share. not in, just market share, not interested in anyone else being in that account. So we got we did get some orders. I mean, we probably sold fifty thousand, probably fifty sixty thousand phones in that time frame. But uh, <laughs> over over an eighteen month period, we we managed to lose. That one and a half million, or one million, or whatever that was invested by by the outside person, as well as another, you know, one and a half, two million of ours in trying to get that up and going, and then realizing this just wasn't going to work. So we had taken all our profits, essentially dumped them into into that business, lost some money for someone else, and then we had to call it a day because it was just not not going anywhere. So it was the first experience of of losing some big money, as well as shutting shutting down a business and telling people they they don't have a job anymore. Yeah. I mean, brutal. I, I have some very tenuous jumps that I'm going to make here, but hmm. feel me out on this one, right? You're in your 20s at this point, right, still? Yeah, I think I was, yeah, I was 27 when I started the business. Yeah. So. Late 20s, early 30s, and you said to me earlier that, you know, you wanted nice cars, so you got into tech. Do you think that this kind of youthful exuberance for money and success drove the spinning out of a new business into this new entity that showed potential for lots of profit, which actually turned out to be a distraction. And you were driven by the wrong incentives philosophically. 100%. Yeah. 100%. If we'd stuck to doing what we were doing, we'd, we'd have way more money, probably be more successful and potentially more successful than we are now in a quicker space of time. But we did distract ourselves because there was this lure of of some potentially big money um, mm. and maybe we didn't think it through properly or we didn't think it through properly and we just didn't have the right people on board potentially as well and uh, mm. it was just a, a big lesson in in value destruction ultimately yeah and how, how having the wrong the wrong motive for something I mean we're all capitalists I mean nobody starts a, not many people start a business to not make any money but it was just a, there, there was a, a big big hook there somewhere and and you know it was it was just it just looked like it was it was an awesome opportunity but actually very soon afterwards probably six months into it you know we realized that this is a lot harder than we thought and probably eight months into it we should have actually started to to extract from that but it took us you know, another 10 months or so after that to actually get out of that business 
the, the observation and the question for me is most people will run a business until they're dead or it's dead until it's bled them dry. You and your partners had the wherewithal to kind of go, well, this isn't working. We are going to screw some people over, but we have to do this. Yeah. Correct. And like, um, w what was that like? I mean, you I, had your I friends' think, money, you, know, think, you had employees. Yeah, luckily. Look, so some of the employees we managed to pull back into into the the original business because that was growing quite yeah. nicely. Others we had to, we did have to let go that were more in admin type roles. And, mm. and ultimately I think, you know, we were, we were all kind of, kind of big boys about it and, and knew that there are risks when you're starting a business and yep. you know, we had lost, we had all lost collectively. It wasn't like, you know, we took VC money, ran out of it and then just went, Meh. it was, yeah. it was, we're all we're all in pain, so mm. that was fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a tough experience to go through, but sometimes a necessary one. And the way that you frame that is right. This is the risk, right? When you're an entrepreneur, this is the risk. And sometimes there will be a death business that doesn't survive, but it is a necessary part of the evolution of becoming a better entrepreneur, a better person. Yeah. And I can yeah. only guess that the lessons you had from that death experience in a business stood you in good stead in the business that you currently have or still have. So let's talk about what happened next. So we didn't learn our lessons. Uh, <laughs> we, we paid them, my which, bad, my bad. Yeah, we paid, we paid the school fees and yep. then thought we were cleverer than the school, I think. And uh, wow. we went into, into three more areas after that. Um, I can't remember the exact timelines, probably a year after that, somebody approached us, an ex-colleague and said, you know, let's start a CRM business doing dynamic CRM and uh, we, we agreed to that and, and we were going to be 50-50 partners and we kind of got going with that. That actually went quite well for the first the first little little while and I'll, I'll come back to I'll come back to that now and then we also moved from we decided that we wanted to move into the services space so we've been supplying hardware only up until up until then and no no value-added services around it or managed services or anything like that so we decided to, to kind of get a, a services division up and going, doing support and, and those kind of things, uh, tech, kind of general tech support around about the same time. So those are the, the kind of two things that uh, that we then kind of we kicked off not, not very long after the, the whole cell phone business scenario. And, and they were going quite well, I must say. We then, we had some issues with our, our partner in the CRM business and, and ultimately that, that failed as well. After the first year of, of profit, and great. I don't want to get into too much detail around it, but you know, when you've got a major shareholder who's distracted and, and a big contributor and doing something else that that you don't necessarily agree with, and taking the eye off the ball in a business that you're trusting them to run, that's a major problem. So initially, in the beginning, we had a lot of involvement, and in the second second year, not a lot of involvement because we trusted them, and that's when we we lost all our profit there that we had made in that first year. And we just started to chuck money into that business. Oh, brutal. Because this podcast is generally very honest and transparent, I'm going to point out the obvious irony that you must have noticed before that this business partner was distracted and that business fell apart and you were giving him shit for that when you were distracted from your own business because of this one. Yeah. So you don't see the wood for the trees when you know. So I, I want to ask you philosophically, 
why? As, as an individual, why did you feel the need to continue to invest in other businesses, start other things and distract yourself? I think as, as entrepreneurs, I think we, we, we always live with imposter syndrome. And even now today, we've got a business that it's a fantastic business. I mean, it's not the, it's not the biggest business out there, but it, it, it does good revenue you know, in kind of real, real currency terms by 10 million pounds a year in revenue, profitable, you know, generates cash. It's great. I still yeah. feel like, you know, that happened by accident somehow. And that, and that, you know, what, what, you know, sometimes I think what was really my part in that. Yeah. And that's crazy talk because, you know, we were the guys that put it all on the line and we've guided the business and, and been through the ups and downs, but you still live with that or, you know, <laughs> Maybe maybe it wasn't me. Maybe it was something else. Maybe it was luck. Maybe yeah. it was you don't know. And it's I don't know if it's a common entrepreneur thing, but it's there. It's it's always there. And I, I say I kind of live in this in this perpetual state of dissatisfaction as well. You know, nothing's nothing's ever good enough, and, and yeah. nothing is nothing is nothing is as a result of of my efforts. If if that makes sense, so you have this imposter syndrome and this this kind of well. It's just, yeah, I call it permanent state of dissatisfaction with whatever it is from a business perspective, even though things that is, are, are really good. It's the most real, sad, and distraught statement I've heard, but it is very consistent with a lot of the people on the show. I mean, without fail, the one theme that comes up in every episode with every entrepreneur at every level is imposter syndrome, whether they've got a $100 million exit behind them or they've just started a $10 year business. They just yeah. feel like they don't belong. So what I want to ask you is, how do you cope with that as an individual? Uh, yeah, it's, once again, it's difficult. You have your, you have your ups and downs and, and you have your, your difficult times where, where you, you face things like depression and things like that. And, and you, you have to power through. I think, I think me as an individual, I kind of, I realize that it's not, it's not only about today. If I can get up tomorrow, that's, that's a success. So if today's bad, just, kind of push through and make sure you get to tomorrow and you can get up and change things that, that happen today. And I guess in, in my in my psychology and in my life, that's kind of how, how I approach things. Vintage, really, do you actually see a psychologist? I have previously. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. it's, it's a big part of what I believe is entrepreneurial mental health is having somebody yeah. help you unpack the boxes in your head at some point because yeah. we're all so involved in our own lives and so close to the problems and so emotionally charged that it's so hard to deal with your own shit. And then you yeah. just spiral into this downward uh, imposter syndrome mess. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that, that, was, the, that was a death. But it wasn't a death of the entire business. I mean, you've built a clearly resilient business because you're now at distraction number two that you've funded and recovered from. Yeah. And wait, there's more. (laughs) Before before you get to the next one, I want to ask you at this point, how is your co-founder relationship with your business partners in the surviving business? There was three of us. The friend who had lent us the money, it was great. He was very supportive. He was, you know, he was, he was in it for the long term, not for a, a short term, a short term quick flip and gain. So, mm-hmm. so he was, he was very supportive. The, the other business partner at the time, that's when I think you see true colors come out and, 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 you know, while we were sacrificing, they were worried about where their salary was coming from and when they were getting paid. And, and that wasn't the kind of, that wasn't the kind of situation we were in. We were, we were at some points not taking salaries and, and checking money in. And 
that just didn't seem to to translate. So you, you know, in the time, when the times, what's that that thing you always see on the back of, of buses and taxis? When, when days are dark, friends are few. Yeah, you, you learn the you learn the true colors of somebody when they're faced with, with adversity and, and pressure. Have I jumped the shark on what the next near death experience is going to be? Were you going to talk about this co-founder partnership at all? Yeah, so that's when when that that kind of co-founder partnership started to deteriorate. Then and we we started discussions about buying out. Um, buying out the, the individual, and that got got messy as as these things can get. Because as a co-founder, you you're, you're willing at some points and unwilling at others, and, and I think you, you also go through the kind of up and down of you know should they get out, should they not get out, and, and, mm. and that kind of thing. And ultimately, that did did get quite messy and very distracting. I mean, it was it was not a it was not a nice time for for anyone. But we plowed on once again. Yeah. We, you know, and you ask why we kept going branching out into into mm. other areas. It's because everyone kept telling us that hardware was dead. We were supplying boatloads of hardware, but everyone said the future was not hardware. The future is huh. in services and cloud. Huh. And you, you're limited on your, your ability and your ability to build a business based purely on selling infrastructure and hardware. Mm. And we kind of took that to heart and did believe that to a certain extent, and we still do, but it's not true. You know, today we sell boatloads of hardware still, and the more, more cloud and services we, we talk about, the more cloud and services we sell, the more hardware we sell. It's just wow. All, all our marketing over the I'll give you an example. So all our marketing over the last eighteen months, if you go and look, there's it's probably ninety eight percent services and cloud. And yet our infrastructure business grows at thirty percent a year at the moment. Wow. So not a nothing spent on, on on marketing the stuff that everyone said was dying. And then just sticking to close the loop on this partner conversation, did you actually end up buying out this partner? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that was around about when? 2010. 2010. About 2010. Okay. So we bought him out and then we actually took on a, a, new, a new, new person to replace him who, who, we, who we bought into the business and we gave a bit of equity to come into the business, who's now one of the largest shareholders in the business today. Ah, okay. That's amazing. I mean, 12 years in, that obviously worked out really well. Yeah. Which is a really good observation to make for those entrepreneurs listening. Just because you started a business with someone doesn't mean you have to continue the business with that person. And there are other people who come in. 100%. And where we are today is that the the two original partners aren't in the business anymore. It's just myself and and Clayton, who came in at that time as a kind of national sales manager. He's probably one of the main reasons that the business is doing as well as it is, we work well together and getting a partner, you know, when you start a business, it's all fine. You know, you're all mates and, and things, things progress and you stuck with those people initially. When you can take on somebody afterwards that you, you realize, oh, you work really well with this person, get them into the business and build something with them. It's a much, it's a much more comfortable situation because you've chosen them. They've chosen you. They put some skin in the game and it works really well. So, you know, the divorce, uh, the, the divorce is difficult. The marriage is easy, and that's what we've learned along the way. Even with an actual divorce and thrown in there as well, because of all of this. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's 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 you know my my message certainly to, to anyone out there is choose your partners wisely right at the beginning and along the way. Don't be afraid to bring on people and potentially give up some equity that you you wouldn't. You know, as, as entrepreneurs, we want to keep it all ourselves. <laughs> I want you know I want my so say so you got fifty percent. I've got to keep my fifty percent, but maybe you know giving away ten percent of that is is going to build build a bigger value down the line. Okay, so now twenty ten, you have got your partner out of the business. 
where are we going towards the next near-death experience? I mean, how many more can one human possibly have? So, so yes, we've got the partner out of the business. We've actually got two partners out of the business because the yes. partner in the CRM business, that kind of fell over and they, we closed that down. So we've got yeah, two partners out of the business, essentially. And then, then we, we kind of looked at what we were doing and we saw in our services business, we were consuming a lot of cloud services from the likes of IS and Afrihost and people like that at the time. And we weren't happy with the service we were getting. So we thought, well, let's, let's build our own cloud infrastructure and host it and, and use kind of use our own services, pay ourselves versus paying someone else, which we started investigating. And then we realized that there wasn't really a channel-focused cloud player out there in the market. It was dealing only with the channel. So everyone kind of dealt with the, the end user as well as had some kind of channel program or had people just consuming the services and reselling it. So we really wanted to start a a channel-focused cloud business to service ourselves and other partners like ourselves. And we, we basically flipped our managed services business into becoming a, a cloud provider. So we, we built a cloud infrastructure based on, on VMware and offered that out uh, to a channel. And that sounds simple, but it wasn't because, you know, we were down, uh, we were down on our knees really in terms of, of money. Uh, we had grown quite rapidly in, in terms of people count. We would committed to lots of expenses over the years. We closed down, you know, we closed down some businesses, but we still had a lot of that overhead around our neck and the, the profit was kind of all gone at that point. So what do we do now? So we sat down and said, well, you know, cloud is one of the future technologies and, and something we have to get involved with. If we're going to do this, <laughs> let's just go all in and do it now. So, so we, we bought some infrastructure and started to start up. That business. And when I say we bought some infrastructure, I mean, a lot of it was funded from our credit card to buy wow. that, you know, leveraging off suppliers to, to give us good deals on stuff, looking for, you know, what boxes of servers were sitting with dust on them around that, that we, we could get really cheap. And we built this infrastructure. It's, uh, the way it was, was built was fantastic. It was on a great technology stack, but the cost of it, nobody would believe it because it was just done in such a way that we, we leveraged every single relationship we had to do it. So we, we got that built up. It started to started to get some traction, but that's a very capital intensive business. So we, we were we were then chucking money at it at infrastructure at people, and we had built up quite a quite a big it was set up as a separate entity. It was called Cloud on Demand. And we had built up quite a big loan from our original business into it, which was probably three four million rand plus into into that, and we we're still kind of losing money every single day, even though we were getting traction. It's one of those it's one of those businesses where. If you want to, if you want to make money, you got to stop investing. But if you want to grow, you got to keep investing. Keep investing, and you you, you really don't have a, a choice. So it's what do you what do you want to do? So we were kind of at a crossroads of what we need to do, and we kind of drained the cash out of everywhere. I mean, we drained the cash out of shareholders' bank accounts. We drained the cash out of out of pretty much everywhere, even down to you know doing the terrible thing of of using some supplier using supplier days to to help try and fund the cash flow. And we got down to to a point where we just hit a, a crunch in terms of not being able to put any more money into into that business, even though it was a great idea and a great business and we believed in it. And we were now putting the the, the core business at, at jeopardy of, of actually having to do basically run out of cash. So what do we do? You know? So we did we we did two things. And that, that was really the, the proper near death experience where mm. we sat down and we kind of looked at the room around us in the boardroom and thought, you know, do I need to start putting my CV together to to try and find a job in the next few weeks because we're stuffed. You know, what do we do? Mm. We absolutely 
absolutely stuffed. And that's a terrible situation to be in as a founder where you just realize mm. you've hit that wall and, and you've made stupid decisions along the way. And yeah, that's, it's a, it's a, it's a horrible time. And I mean, you're being exceptionally in. critical of yourself, which I completely understand. Those decisions weren't stupid. They were relevant and contextual at the time. Don't you feel in hindsight, they were stupid, but at the time you were doing the best you could do. Absolutely. I mean, you're always doing the best you can do, but in hindsight, there were some of them were really stupid decisions. And, <laughs> and I guess now, nowadays, every decision we make, we kind of look at anything. Well, why are we, why are we doing this? Is this a stupid decision? Yeah. And, and that's really shaped a lot of what we've done since then. So yeah. 20, 2011, I think this was end of, end of 2011, we basically were about to, we were about to hit the wall. It was a case of, mm. you know, auditors were telling us, listen, guys, <laughs> this isn't going to, this isn't going to carry on. We don't see a way out for you. And when the auditors start calling you, then, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because they, they were helping us with our, our monthly accounts and all that kind of thing. And, and uh, yeah, we, we had a great relationship with them and they just said, you guys are, you guys are done. You know, you come back to us with a plan or we, we're going to actually, we're going to say this, you know, we're, we're going to liquidate you. you. Formally yeah. filed for liquidation. Yeah. And, and we, we just kind of said, you know, me, myself and Clayton, we said, we're not going to work for anyone else again. Um, it's not what we want to do. So what are we going to do now? It's, this is no choice. We have to make this work. And we set in plan, we set in motion a, a plan to, to do multiple things. So we went to the suppliers who by this point we owed quite a bit of money to and mm. probably was dubious whether they were going to get paid. And we okay. said, we, we, listen, guys, we're, we're stuffed, but we actually have a good business. We're not stuffed because our core business was run badly. We made poor decisions. And the core business is still fine, which is the business that you're servicing. Let's work together to make sure that this that this continues and that you can you can one number one not have to write off any debt, and number two have a very loyal customer after this. And our two biggest suppliers were, were super accommodating. Um, wow. they, they they extended our credit terms by another thirty days to give us some breathing room. So essentially, essentially they they. If you think practically, they injected cash into us, I suppose, floated us. And so we went from 30 days credit to 60 days credit with our two biggest suppliers. We had to, but it was very, we were very transparent. We showed them exactly where, where we had made mistakes, where we had lost money and what our plan was. So we had to have a plan to reduce costs, which we did. We, we went into retrenchment rounds. Hmm. Anyone that was non-core got retrenched. And and we, we kind of managed to, to, to scrape by. Along with that, we said, well, our cloud business that we're building is, has some value. It's not that it's, it doesn't have value. It, it really does. So what do we do here? And we, we had a relationship with Tarsus, one of the big distributors in South Africa. And they had been talking about taking a, a stake in the business to try and move their, their, themselves from being just an infrastructure player and distributor into, into the cloud space. So we negotiated a deal where they would, they would take on they would basically buy 50% of the business in exchange for slight cash payment and for increased commitment of investment moving forward. So, you know, it took away the, wow. the, the need for us to chuck more money in to that business. And it allowed us the cash portion, of, you know, I wish as founders we could have taken it and, and used it, but we essentially did and put it back into our original business to, to get those supplier accounts that we had, we kind of had extended terms with paid up and get us back on an even 
even footing. Yeah, so the, wow. the, the byproduct of that was me having said, I don't want to work for a boss. It meant I had to go along with this cloud business to make sure that it worked because now we had taken a whole bunch of for it. And, and I went to Tarsus and basically, I think I was there for two or three years doing exactly that, working for a boss, making sure that this business worked and that I could step out of it at some point and, and come back to, to Velocity. Wow, there's so much to unpack there. Let me go back to the, the beginning of starting the cloud business and ask you, why, why were you rushing? What was the imminent, desperate need to plow money into this business? Why didn't you wait for profit to arrive from your core business to then put into the cloud business? Why go and basically draw out everybody's money now? I think it was a timing thing. So, you know, cloud at that point in South Africa hadn't really taken off. Um, there was some niche, kind of niche smaller players. The, the hyperscalers weren't there. So we thought the hyperscalers at some point are going to be coming quite quickly into South Africa, quite aggressively. So we want to build a, a platform and a cloud business. Now's a good time. Now's a good time to do it because we're going to get that, that kind of advantage on, on everyone else. There was nobody that was doing a, a channel only business at that time. We thought it was logical that someone's going to come along and, and try that. So the, you know, we had convinced ourselves that that was the time, the time to do it. And you know, it's not that you know, our core, our core hardware business was still growing in terms of revenue. Mm. Funny enough, you know, that did that tapered off. Uh, because we had invested so heavily in making sure this cloud business now worked, you know, I guess our mm. hardware business was taking a bit of a strain mm. from us moving our, our eyes off the ball. And, you know, we just felt we, we had to do it. We had to do it for one last ditch effort to, to have a proper business moving forward. Yeah. And looking back, so the reason I ask this context here, one of my very first venture back businesses, we said the same thing to our VCs. Yeah, we, we've raised 5 million rand from you. We just need a little bit more because now shit's getting urgent. And they were like, yeah. why? What do you mean urgent? And we said, this is such a big opportunity. There absolutely will be competitors within the next 12 months. Yeah. And the next 12 months came and went and there were no competitors and they never yeah. arrived. They just didn't come. So looking back, was your situation kind of similar? Could you have waited another year or two before this had happened? Yes and no. I think I think we could have. But the stars kind of aligned because, you know, Tosses had bought 50% of the business and then they bought out the, the other 50% two and a half years later or three years later. And uh -huh. we did make money on that. Yeah. So, so if we hadn't done that deal at that time and set it up as we as we did, we wouldn't have made money later later yeah. in the process. So we did have a successful exit on that business. You know, initially, yes, the business, you know, it was sold. It was sold for practical reasons, but it was to the right partner. And that was important. It wasn't, we weren't just taking the money. We, we sold it to the right partner. We had the right vision. We, we knew what they were doing. We thought would, would really work with us in that process. And they did. And, that allowed us to, to build a really nice business that we, we could exit from. And if we had waited, I don't think we would have had that opportunity. Yeah. They, would have, they would have gone to someone else. Yeah, balanced view. I like sounds sounds sensible. Okay, then the next observation I want to make that a lot of entrepreneurs don't realize that I'm sure you did because your auditors were talking to you, but going to your clients or your suppliers with basically an admission of a business that is almost about to be liquidated is unbelievably risky because they can put you into involuntary liquidation sure. and hopefully get their money back. So the observation sure. I want to make is you must have really trusted your relationship with these clients and built some cachet with them over years to be able to show them the truth and go, fuck it, Absolutely. you guys do what you got to do. Yeah, look, we had no choice. So yes, we've built great relationships. 
and we were we were trusted you know, we were trusted in the industry so so we were quite confident that they would work with us mm. but on the flip side we knew they had to because what assets were they if they liquidated what assets were they going to get you know not enough to cover their debt so it was a case of it was a bit of not poker but it was a bit of like well guys you, actually you have to work with us because you're going to get nothing uh, what's your choice get get nothing or work with us yeah yeah, you guys built a, a, a business in a situation where you were giving a good service at a good price to good suppliers, and actually they needed you and you needed them, and it was symbiotic in the end. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But it did, it did take a lot of balls to sit down and you know and say to these guys, listen, you know that account payment that's due end of this month, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And, <sighs> and actually, and actually, I need you to. I need you to help me out here. But I think the difference was that we didn't sit down and say, this is what's happening. Mm. We're not going to pay you. And that was it. We sat down and said, right, guys, this is what's happened. We're not going to pay you. However, this is our plan. And we really had a, a methodical plan to say, this is how we're going to reduce costs. Because we had come up with it for ourselves. So could we, could we do this? Yeah. If we reduce the costs by you know the following over the following number of months and, and we stuck to the plan on the following things, do we believe we could do it? Answer is yes. So we believe we could do it. We had the plan. We showed them the plan. They believed we could do it. And I mean, it was 2012, 10 years ago now. Yeah. And I mean, it reminds me of that management book, The One Minute Manager. In there somewhere, the author says, your staff should come to you with a one, three, one. One problem, three solutions, and one recommendation. That's basically what you did. Here's our big yeah. problem. We've got some solutions. Here's where we recommend we go. And they were like, okay, seems like you thought this through. Yeah. yeah. And then we committed, we committed to meet with them regularly to update them. So it wasn't a case of, well, you know, now we just we could have done one meeting. Yeah. We, we literally sat with them every month and showed them our progress. We showed them our financials, our sales, wow. our, you know, how we were doing against those cost reductions and how it was all going. And, and if we didn't, I think if we didn't do that, we would have had no chance. But, you know, in that process, I don't know if, if you've ever done it, but the trench people sitting sitting down and you know, telling 20, um, we, I think we were up to I think we were about 44, 45 people then, and we reduced wow. that to, I think, 18. It was, it was brutal. And tell me how, I mean, very briefly, but how did that unravel? Was it one conversation with the whole company? And if so, what was that conversation? And like, how did you cope? What, what did you say? We just had to be brutally honest. We, you know, we, we said the business is in trouble. The, we have to cut costs. Our biggest cost, unfortunately, is, is people. Mm. And there are going to be a lot of you that are affected, but we will mm. try and work with you to, to minimize that impact and to, and to refer you on to companies we know or people we know. And we, we, you know, we did try that to get people other roles, but we had to just say, Guys, we're starting a section one eight nine process. I, I don't know what to tell you, you know, and and the brutal honesty was was hard. You know, when you got people crying in front of you, uh, you know, bawling their eyes out, telling you about their children, and you just it's it's heartbreaking. It's, it really is, and and I think what 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 a lot of people don't see when they see you know a business owner or an entrepreneur is doing quite well you know he's bought a nice new car or something like that everyone begrudges him for as a as an employee potentially not everyone but you know a lot of employees mm. do begrudge the owners for for the for for kind of success. some of their success yeah. but they, for, they don't really remember the times when there wasn't success and what 
people had to go through and the, the risk reward ratio. Whereas uh, you know, an employee, what's your risk reward ratio? Well, you, get, you, got to, you show up and you get paid at the end of the month. As an owner, you know, I, was, I was at risk of losing my house, my car, my credit history, being on the hook for, I don't know, 17 or 18 million rand to suppliers. Personally, it's, it's tough. Yeah, it is, it is a misunderstanding that a lot of young and first-time entrepreneurs have that retrenchments should be avoided at all costs, that you have an obligation to the employees to keep them there at, no matter what happens. And actually, your obligation is always to your business. Well, we, we, had, the, we had the reverse view. Our obligation was to keep the people we could employed. Mm, exactly. So, exactly. Yes, we, yes, we were going to essentially cut 50% of the workforce, but... The other fifty percent would still have jobs versus nobody having a job. Yep, and that's how we had, that's how we had to look at it and how we had to get through it was well, we actually saving twenty people's jobs, not losing forty. Okay, yeah. so I'm hoping that there are not any more near death business experiences for you to tell us about, and you can tell us about the growth over the next decade. Yeah, so there weren't really. I mean, the next near death one was possibly COVID, but by the yeah. time we got to COVID, it was it was like. This is really not a problem. <laughs> you know, we've, been, we've been through worse. We got this. But we're fine. We're fine. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. When, when COVID hit, it wasn't, for us, it wasn't actually like the worst thing our business had ever faced. We'd done that, you know, eight, five, eight years before. So, so leading up to COVID, yeah, I had gone to Tarsus and we'd, we'd grown that out. I think, I think they completed the acquisition of the rest of the business in 2016 which is when I came back to Velocity, the core infrastructure business, because that's all we had left at that time. I mean, we had tried, I mean, this is what we had tried. Some of the stuff I've left out because it's just too much to tell you. We tried uh, office automation, the CRM, cell phones. There was something else in there. Cabling. We tried cabling. Didn't work. That wasn't like Wild. big bits, but, but we, had, we had added on these things that we thought we could sell to customers, but they, they hadn't, yeah. really, hadn't really worked all that well. Or, we, or they, they had potential to, but we had to just let them go when we did the retrenchments and had to, had to cost cut. You know, mm. like our cabling, our cabling area could have been a really, really great business. We'd never know because, you know, we were six months into, into trying that and had to retrench everyone. I still think, yeah, I still think it would have been a great business. So, yeah, 2016, Tarsus, I came back to Velocity after Tarsus had bought the balance of the of Cloud On Demand out and rebranded it Tarsus On Demand. When you come back, do you resume your position as CEO or how do you fit in? Yeah, so it was, it was, it was kind of interesting. So I didn't actually know because, you know, I said I didn't want to work for a boss and, and practically I was working for a boss. And, you know, one day I just sat and thought, well, why am I doing this? You know, I don't actually need to anymore. The transaction's done. I've, I've got a business at Tarsus On Demand that is set up and structured to, to operate without me or for somebody to take over quite easily. So I don't really need to be here anymore. Mm. And I really wanted to get back to building the Velocity business because the Velocity infrastructure business had kind of been bubbling along. It wasn't really doing great things. It was growing a little bit every year, but it was solid. You know, it was generating cash, it was profitable. There was, there was nothing wrong with it, but it wasn't, mm. uh, wasn't really shooting the lights out. And it wasn't, once again, in my mind, wasn't positioned for the future of how technology will be bought and interacted with. And all the learning from being in a cloud business had shown me what kind of what we needed to do moving forward to, to really accelerate the core velocity business again mm. into, into something that was going to grow. So I, I kind of arrived back. Clayton, Clayton was, uh, was running the business for me, the, the, the partner that we took on, and doing very well. 
and it must have been quite difficult for him when I kind of arrived at the front door with my lunchbox and said, you know, I'm back. What? I'm back, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it must have been tough for him, I think, because he'd had a bit of autonomy and freedom. I wasn't mm. really involved at all because of the, you know, we had kind of put up a glass wall because I was dealing with a lot of partners and resellers at the time at, at the task side. Yeah. So I, I, I really had a view of the financials and didn't get involved in any operational day-to-day stuff. And then, and, and then kind of arrived back and, and started to, to dig back into it. So my goal was when I arrived back was to, to not actually get involved from an infrastructure side, but to get a cloud and services business up and going once again, because mm. we had sold the last one. Yeah. So we took a view and we had said, well, what's, what's actually, what's, what's going to be our kind of game changer moving forward? And there was nobody really talking about hybrid cloud and how these kind of global hyperscalers and, and kind of other clouds would work with the on-premises world. And it was either one or the other. It was, you know, mm-hmm. it's, most organizations had a, a salesperson coming in to sell them cloud or a salesperson coming in to sell them infrastructure. Nobody was sitting down with them and saying, well, how do we make these two worlds work? Because you probably have both and you probably will have both moving forward for a long period of time. You're always going to have some kind of infrastructure, whatever mm-hmm. that is. It might be PCs, it might be networking, it might be servers for some yeah. application that can't go in the cloud. Nobody's going to be all in the cloud ever because somebody has to access the cloud anyway. Because also there is um, no cloud. It's actually servers yeah. that you just give people access to in the cloud. There has to be a server somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So how do you get those two to work? And that, that's where we said, okay, that's going to be our, 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 kind, of, our kind of USP is, is going and talking to customers about this hybrid world. But we didn't have any services capability because we'd sold it off. So my goal was to either build that up again, which I didn't want to do because we'd been there. And because we'd had a good track record of a few years of, of, of actual decent business since, uh, since that the kind of death experience, we had, some, we had some capital built up. And so we decided we actually going to look for a small business to buy. Um, well, we're going to look for a business to buy. And we, we kind of dug around. We got quite far with, with a pretty decent size organization that would have essentially doubled ours. It would have been a, a, great, a great acquisition. We had the funding lined up and that kind of fell through at the last minute for various reasons. And uh, then we, we, we stumbled onto a small services business where they were great technical guys, but from a, from a sales and, and marketing perspective, not great. And we were very good at the sales and marketing side and we were the technical side. So we, we bought that uh, that business, we bought a majority stake in that business. And I think it was four years ago, yeah, four or five years ago. And that's grown phenomenally. So that completed our message of being able to do infrastructure and cloud and doing it as a unified service or unified offering to customers. And, and that's when really things started to accelerate because not only did we accelerate the services side, but it accelerated, as I said, you know, the more we spoke about services and cloud, the more hardware we sold. Mm. So we had two really, really good years of growth in both services and hardware. Then COVID kind of hit and that, that wiped out one year and set us back a year essentially. And we've been growing, I think this year we, we, we I think last year we were about 25% year on year growth and this year will do the same if not more wow um, and so a, global, a more global digits. expansion ahead for you correct so so once we had better that down a lot of our, our infrastructure a lot of our projects from the services and cloud side have been outside of south africa so with one of the major breweries we de- deployed a, a microsoft 365 project across 11 countries seven countries fifteen thousand users i think 
We wow. did that. We did a massive uh, engineering services company across Europe and Scotland. We migrated 40,000 endpoints and 2,500 wow. servers into a single domain. We did a massive uh, French company that bought out one of the, the labs in South Africa that bought out all the African operations. And we did that migration across, once again, 2,500 users, eight companies, uh, eight countries. And so we realized that a lot of our services work for some reason was outside of South Africa with multinationals. And there was, there was a lot of opportunity to, to accelerate that. And at the time, we thought that the UK was probably a good base to, to get a UK and Europe operation going and to, and to start something outside of South Africa because the time zone's the same, the culture's relatively the same. And we actually had those plans just before COVID hit and the, the, the kind of lockdown hit. So we had a company registered in the UK. We were going to, to start recruiting over here. And, and then COVID hit and that kind of stalled. Then fortuitously, you know, through, through not fortuitously, this bit's not fortuitous, that I got divorced through the, the whole retrenchment and business nearly dying process. I had two kids and, and ultimately my, my ex-wife a year and a half ago or so decided to move to, to be with them, which I didn't necessarily oppose ultimately. But then with my kids being here, it became, well, hold on a second, we're going to open this UK business. Now's the time to actually get across and make sure that it happens. And we, we really view that the next leg of our expansion is, is into, into other territories like UK and Europe, where we can do a lot of business, a lot of services business out of South Africa at a lower cost base and deliver some world-class projects where we have, we've got a proven proven capability so that's that's what we're doing here is is now in the uk trying to trying to expand on that and ultimately looking for acquisitions as well what a story over 15 years i have never listened to somebody experience so many ups and downs and distractions and still come out on top with expansion plans in place so this this has been incredibly educational for me. I'm certain that my listeners feel the same. And before we log off, I want you to tell our listeners where they can find you, follow you, buy from you, come and work from you, whatever you want to tell them. The floor is yours. Go for it. Yeah. So from from a company perspective, the website's velocitygroup.global, and you can you can find our South African website and our UK website from there. We're on LinkedIn. There's a Velocity Group SA. I will link account. to those. And, and we'll, we'll link to all of those because I'm not sure what yep. they all are right now. But yeah, so mainly LinkedIn is, is a great source to, to follow us. And we, we try not to do a lot of selling stuff on there. We try to post a lot of, a lot of content around uh, technology and articles. And if, we, if we're wow. talking about something, it's not necessarily, hey, buy from us type of stuff. So a good place to, to follow us. And, and yeah, certainly follow me on LinkedIn as well. So that's both across our company pages and, and myself. So yeah, we would urge people to follow Velocity Group South Africa and Velocity Group UK and Ireland, UK and Europe on, on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, Jonathan, again, thank you for giving so vulnerably and honestly of your time and your stories. It's been so educational. I'm so glad to say that for you and Velocity Group, it's not over. Yeah, it's not. <laughs>